everybody. The sound of the horns. That can mean but one thing. It's time once again for Yukon 360. It's the only podcast in the known universe that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. This is our big 40th. Ep- <gasps> lordy, lordy. Yukon 360 <laughs> is 40. We're over the hill. We are over the hill. <laughs> Joining me as I oh God for me personally, that's like another sixteen years before I turn forty. <laughs> anyway, I'm here with uh, my co-hosts as always, Julie Bartuka. You sound very mellow on this fiftieth anniversary of Woodstock, Tom. Yeah, well, that might be the pop filter I'm using now. Yeah. <laughs> Ken Best, this is the big fortieth. I remember that year. It's a big one. A long time ago. And we've got, a gr- for our 40th episode, it's a great episode. It's a great episode, always. And why don't we start off by getting into some Husky headlines. Julie, tell Husky us what's happening. headlines. I wanted to give a shout-out to the eight UConn researchers who were recently awarded the coveted Faculty Early Career Development Awards from the National Science Foundation. This program supports early career faculty who have the potential to serve as academic role models in research and education and to lead advances in the mission of their department or organization. We've got eight researchers across different departments, and they are Julia Valla, Assistant Professor of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering for a project to aid the fuel processing industry. Jessica Rouge, Assistant Professor of Chemistry, for her work to develop new strategies to synthesize shells to help develop more sensitive biological sensors and more accurate drug delivery systems. Alexei Mostavi, Assistant Professor of Mathematics, for his work related to financial market analysis. Yupeng Chen, Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering, for research that aims to develop a novel delivery vehicle for a Nobel Prize-winning therapy to treat osteoarthritis. Daniel McCarran, Assistant Professor of Physics. For his work related to quantum computers, I'm not even going to try to explain what he does. Zhao Jing Wang, Assistant Professor of Statistics, for her work to advance statistical modeling for personalized K-12 education. Bin Feng, Assistant Professor of Biomedical Engineering, who researches chronic pain. And finally, Sabido Centaniello, Assistant Professor of Biomedical Engineering as well, for his research on neuronal networks that aims to help use deep brain stimulation to treat millions of people worldwide. This research just crosses the spectrum of a lot of different disciplines here, and it's very impressive, and it all helps real people. Congratulations to all of them. Absolutely. Congratulations to all of them. Ken, what, uh, what do you have for us? We have the news of one of the largest construction projects on campus just being complete. And I think in the eyes of the students, one of the most important, the new Student Recreation Center is ready to go. Its official opening will be at 6 a.m. on August 26th, which is the first day of the fall semester. It's four stories tall, 191,000 square feet. And inside that building, you will find 200 pieces of cardio equipment, 15 tons of free weights and plates, 175 strength stations, a 56-foot high climbing wall. Multi-purpose courts, racquetball courts, swimming pools, and towel dispensers for the students. They get free towels. <laughs> towel dispensers. For towel dispensers. Towel dispensers. I'm going to tour it today. I'm excited. That's the big news for students. Recreation Executive Director Cindy Costanzo, an alumnus from 1988, says 2,500 students a day have been using facilities in general. It's about 675000 a year. of the student population, she thinks, conservatively, there will be 6,000 a day and more than a million for the year. So that's pretty big news. It is. It can also be used by faculty and staff and members of the community, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Or a fee. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, that's only fair. The students are paying for of it course. on their fee bill. Turning now from the news to more in-depth news, I guess. Features. Yeah, 40 episodes. I still can't do a proper segue. <laughs> you used to be really good at it. I don't know, I know. what happened. It's all done. Like, you whoa. used all of them. <laughs> You're tapped out. Julie. Yes. What story do you have for us <laughs> this week? Just to, you know, really illuminate the fact that these stories come to us from all over. There's a woman who lives on the other corner of my little side street. And I have a crazy dog. I don't know that I've talked about my dogs much on the podcast. Is this this story UConn related? It is. (laughs) It is. I'll get there. Hold on. So our dogs love each other but also hate each other. My dog freaks out and barks when... He sees her dog and her dog chews on the fence when we walk by. So it's really great. And I knew this woman worked at UConn, but I didn't know what she did. A couple weeks ago, I saw a Meet the Researcher feature on her on UConn Today. And turns out she does very interesting research on exercise physiology. Beth Taylor is an associate professor of kinesiology in the College of Ag, Health, and Natural Resources. She's the director of exercise physiology research in the Department of Cardiology at Hartford Hospital. In that role, she manages all the trials related to exercise, health, and wellness in the cardiology department involving marathon running, statin drugs, hypertension, Alzheimer's disease, and more, all as they relate to physical activity. I see Taylor running around the neighborhood, and I learned from the story that I saw in UConn today that she's been a lifelong runner, and I asked her how, with that passion, she became an exercise researcher. I was a nutrition major in undergrad, and there's a saying that says, if the furnace burns hot enough, it doesn't matter the type of fuel. And that's kind of how I felt about running. I've been a lifelong runner. I ran competitively through high school and college, and I really was interested in nutrition, but pretty soon I've kind of come to the thought of if you do enough physical activity, what you put into your body maybe doesn't matter as much. Now, I know my nutrition colleagues would be screaming right now (laughs) as they hear me, and the truth is it's both. You need health and physical activity exercise to do both, but I got more interested in exercise at And I went back and got my PhD because my grandmother got Alzheimer's disease. And at the time when I was doing a lot of research on what she was going through just from a personal perspective, I got really interested in exercise as a treatment. I got lucky in that after I graduated, I was offered a research position at Hartford Hospital with Dr. Paul Thompson. And he, at the time, was the head of cardiology. He's still there as an emeritus in cardiology, but he's a sports cardiologist who's renowned throughout the world for studying things like athletes' heart, conditions that athletes have, is there such a thing as too much exercise, cholesterol-lowering drugs on skeletal muscle and side effects, all these things that relate to both exercise and cardiovascular disease. So I started working there, and that's kind of the chapters that got written after that, right, being able to meld all these things together. Very interesting. And you talked about your grandmother. You also have your sister influence some of your research. So you guys flew to Seattle for a marathon, right, or half marathon, and she came home and had blood clots. I've told this story so many times. It's a little bit of the opposite of that. She flew from Seattle to Connecticut. Oh, okay. She and I ran a half marathon together, and she always likes to joke that this is proof that I'm trying to kill her because she flew back to Seattle and got a blood clot and a pulmonary embolism. Wow. And that's really rare in young, healthy, especially athletic individuals. The doctors were really surprised. It took them a while to diagnose her pulmonary embolism. They just kept saying, gosh, we can't imagine someone as young and healthy as you are. I, of course, started to do some research like I always do. We do know there's risks of long-term 
travel, cross-country travel. Mm -hmm. But again, you usually just don't see young, healthy people fly cross-country and then get a blood clot. As I was doing some research about it, I was wondering, well, gosh, I wonder if it's the combination of travel and exercise that could predispose someone to get a blood clot. Maybe there's a small acute risk. My, again, going back to Paul, my boss at the hospital at the time, he was and still is good friends with some of the people who serve on the Boston Marathon Advisory Team. And they said, hey, you know, we're really looking to do some research studies at Boston. Do you guys have any ideas? And I thought, what a perfect study to test what happens when people fly to Boston, which they do from all over the world and race, and then fly back home again. That research has morphed over the years. I've done a lot of follow-up studies with compression socks and oral contraceptives. And every time, you know, when I say something to my sister, she laughs and she says, haven't you taken this far enough? I am still alive. <laughs> but it's not just her. <laughs> so what are what are some of the key findings out of that research? Well, it was really interesting and has been because our research really does suggest that if you fly to and from a marathon you do have a slightly increased risk of having a blood clot. And what's fascinating is that for any of us at any point in time, our bodies are constantly making clots and breaking them down. It's called hemostatic balance. Even when you exercise, that balance is upregulated. You get more clots because you cause a lot of damage with repeated foot strikes on the ground to Mm -hmm. the microvasculature or the small blood vessels. But your body breaks them down. However, if you throw travel into the mix or travel and oral contraceptives into the mix or perhaps running a race and being in stasis for a long period of time, so sitting a long time afterwards, those things can increase your risk. And we think that that's the reason that sometimes these really healthy athletes get blood clots. Since then, since we started publishing this research, we have a DVT or a deep vein thrombosis registry. We've gotten lots of athletes registering in that Mm -hmm. saying, I never knew that other people had this happen. There have been studies that have come out with NHL athletes, NFL, NBA athletes, again, reporting this incidence of blood clots. And it's not that it's an epidemic or it's not that anybody shouldn't go out and exercise, but just being knowledgeable about flying to and from races, for example, for the recreational athletes perhaps wearing compression socks, being aware that you really need to get up and move around on planes. And if you do some of the things that people do, like five marathons in five days in five different states, then there can be a greater risk Mm -hmm. of a blood clot. And so knowing the signs and symptoms can be really important too, either for athletic trainers, college athletes, physicians. I talked a few years ago with Linda Pescatello about what the best type of exercise is for a person. And we all try to exercise. We all try to be more active. What do people need to know, just the typical person who wants to stay fit about so exercising? So I'm going to have a little bit of a bias here in that we know that there is a dose of exercise, that's 150 minutes per week of aerobic or resistance exercise, just kind of a combined volume, which is a bare minimum. And if you do more than that, say 300 minutes a week, your benefits increase. So there's kind of this sweet spot of 150 to 300 minutes per week. That would be 30 to 60 minutes five times a week. And although I would love to say that we as a country should have social programs and structures that help us promote that more, we don't. You know, we don't live in environments that promote walking. We have to fit in planned physical activity. Mm -hmm. 
I think what happens is that people hear that message of 150 to 300 minutes per week and it's overwhelming. It feels like an all or none message. Like if I get 100 minutes per week, that's not enough. I failed. And physical activity starts to become this very disillusioning concept. And the truth is, of course, you mentioned Dr. Pescatello. She sat on the Physical Activity Mm -hmm. Guidelines Writing Committee. Their message was that any activity helps. And in fact, if you look at the big cardiovascular mortality studies, they have found that the biggest bang for your buck just comes from not being sedentary, five to 10 minutes a day. That is it. If you look at people who exercise 30 minutes total over a week, a half hour, so that really is five minutes a day, their risk of a cardiovascular event is half of people who are sedentary. Although we know the sweet spot for exercise and where you can maximize your benefits, I think the bigger message is just five minutes a day. And I think if we started there, we might be more successful at getting people to consider the ways in which you could add in five minutes of exercise. And Dr. Pescatello had said what the best kind is is whatever you can do, whatever you want to do, whatever you'll get to do. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I think there are certain types of exercise that are really beneficial across the lifespan because they sometimes involve some things that we tend to not think are important. Walking and running, for example, they're great because they're simple, But they're also great because they involve you if you do it outside in your outside environment. They're very social. And interestingly, what we know about physical activity is that it's not just the activity itself. It's what it comes with it. I agree with her completely in that you have to do what you love or else you won't end up doing it. Exercise should not be drudgery. But I also think that forms of exercise in which you involve other systems, whether it be social systems, cognitive systems, getting outside in an environment with sunshine and air, I think those things build in an added benefit. And so I always lean heavily in terms terms of those. And in fact, some of the neatest research I've seen in terms of Alzheimer's and cognitive decline with aging is finding that you almost double the benefits of exercise on the brain if you add in a cognitive task. Very broad question to end. What do you love about your job and working at UConn and Harvard Hospital? Oh my gosh. From The combination of working in those two places, I've loved the integration of the academic environment with the clinical environment. It's a rare thing when you get to see the science that you're studying applied on a day-to-day basis. So what's been really neat for me is working with doctors and patients I hear real-life stories. We see patients who report things that we never really knew were a problem and would never have thought to study. Or we see patients whose lives have been really changed. From an academic standpoint, though, we can do things up up at UConn because we have such great cutting-edge technology, the Institute for Systems Genomics, for example, or running MRIs on brains. You get this ability to isolate one thing that a doctor can't necessarily do in a medical environment and bring it up here and really try and understand what it happens. So it's like I get this full spectrum of approach. And then honestly, one of the neatest things that I've loved over the years about my time at UConn is the students that come to UConn, I think, or at least from my experience, the students that are here at UConn are really some bright, independent, motivated students. And so for me, working with a lot of patients at the hospital who are also motivated but motivated by different factors, 
it's really refreshing sometimes to come here and take a step back and just be working with people who are interested in learning, not yet because they're sick or they need to be treated, but because they're pursuing an education. That's very cool stuff. And right in your neighborhood. UConn's everywhere. See? She's currently studying the use of exercise interventions among people in their midlife, so 30s and 40s, way older than us, Tom. Yes. Who have Alzheimer's. (laughs) You're 30 or 40, Ken, are you? No, not anymore. She's studying midlife people um, who have Alzheimer's risk factors using exercise to mitigate their risk of developing Alzheimer's later in life. So all very applicable. You know, I like the way you said people in midlife. That's a very polite way of expressing that, a very well-mannered way. Oh, yeah, I'm very polite. And well-mannered. say I'm an expert on etiquette. And that segue, <laughs> it's, kind of an, it's kind of an alley-oop, that was the two of us, takes us to Ken. <laughs> Your story this week is all about manners. Yes, it is. Sociologist Andrea Voyer studies ethnographic research on the cultural processes of inequality in democratic community organizations. That's a complicated sociological study, but she's found that manners and etiquette often are noted in racial, ethnic, class, and gender exclusion. She decided, when she discovered this, to study etiquette by looking at Emily Post's Etiquette, the doyen of all etiquette, the book of manners first published in 1922. The book is in its 19th printing, with the most recent update published two years ago in 2017. The 19 editions of Emily Post include more than 7 million words and 90,000 pages of text. And she's using an interesting way to uh, do the research. So our discussion began with uh, Professor Voyer's explanation of how etiquette fits into the world of sociology. Sociologists have long studied what we call social norms. The expectations that we have for each other in society in terms of how to behave, and you can have explicit social norms, which would be the law, or explicit rules about what to wear or how to act, but then you can have implicit social norms, which are people's informal expectations of each other. And so sociologists think that social norms are really important for a couple of reasons. One is that social norms integrate society They basically keep people behaving the way that we expect them to behave. They keep people doing what they ought to do. They keep things running. We know what to expect. The world runs generally the way we expect it to run. And another reason social norms are important in sociology is that they're really tied to your social location, your social roles. If you're a mother, if you're a doctor, if you're a professor, if you're a student, your social class, there are different class norms about how to behave, how to handle things. There are different regional norms, ethnic groups, etc. So social norms are part of group culture as well. And so that's why sociologists think that it's really important. The reason I decided to focus on etiquette as an example of social norms is because in my work on social inequality, what I was seeing was that people who were really committed, for example, to racial equality or having an open democratic organization often had behavioral expectations that could be violated by members of a lower status group. So for example, I was doing research in a fairly elite church, and when people arrived at that church in jeans, the established members of the church looked down on them a little bit, and they thought, oh, they're probably lower class people, or you didn't even think they're lower class people. They think that we're not, they're not the right kind of people because they don't know how to behave at church. 
And so through the exclusion of these people on the basis of them having genes, there was a reproduction of class inequality because lower class people who didn't know this was a kind of place where people expected you to have black slacks on instead of jeans were then kind of excluded from being considered worthwhile members of the church. So I realized if I really wanted to get at inequality, which was my interest as a sociologist, that I had to focus on norms, these behavioral expectations and how people use them. Once I started looking into that, I realized that nice way to do that would be to look at etiquette, etiquette books, because this is a place where a lot of these norms get written down. Now, there are lots of books about etiquette, but you decided to focus on the doyen of etiquette, Mm -hmm. Emily Post. Mm -hmm. And she has, through her original work and her legacy work with her family at the Emily Post Institute, has published 19 editions of Emily Post's classic book, Etiquette. Why did you decide to focus on one book rather than look at the broad spectrum of what's out there? One of the main reasons that I decided to focus on one book is, as you said, there's so much etiquette information out there. There are columns, there are radio segments, there are podcasts. But the thing about most of the etiquette instruction is it's kind of inconsistent because it's focused on a specific problem. Whereas an etiquette book like Emily Post's Etiquette is designed to be the general reference, the encyclopedia of etiquette. It's more consistent. It's designed to be generalized and to last for a while. So that's one reason. Another reason is that once I began studying norms and manners through etiquette, I realized how much information there was. And I needed a way to think about, well, what kind of time period or what are the bounds of what I wanted to look at? Somehow, as I was just doing some background research, I realized or I came across this fact that Emily Post's etiquette, which was always considered to be a very mainstream, widely read text. It's one of the most well-known etiquette books. Emily Post herself was very well-known, still is. And um, that book itself coming out over all of that time meant that I could take a nice historical perspective. In sociology, we we would call this a panel study in that if there are 19 editions and they come out about every five years, I can look at what changes across those editions really specifically in a way that I couldn't do if I was just taking the entire of etiquette literature. Uh, So now what I've got is this ability to look, okay, in 1932, this is what Emily Post says about smoking, in 1937, how does it change? Is it the language that you've seen change, or is it the approach to looking at etiquette that you've seen change? It's pretty early in the research right now, but I would say that both the language shifts between 1922 and today, and also the way of talking about manners and what they are shifts. I've actually been a little bit less focused on the language shifting. However, one of the things we are paying attention to is the vocabulary of inclusion and exclusion. What people are the problematic people? What behaviors are the problematic behaviors? And that shifts. And so to the extent that that's represented in the language of the text, we're interested. But really, the focus in the shifts of the purpose of manners, or at least the way that the people who are putting out etiquette talk about the purpose of manners, there is a shift. Because Emily Post, when she began writing etiquette, 
she wrote the book in reference to this group that she called Best Society. And so the book was written describing how what she called the best people did things. And she was conveying that information for the rest of us who weren't the best people so we could learn to act like those best people. Over time, that belief or emphasis in the idea that the best way to behave is coming from the elites of society falls away from the text. And so instead, there's a rise in the just the common senseness of good, good behavior. That, so that's a definite shift in etiquette. And one of the things I think is interesting in terms of my work is, although Emily Post has this elite reference group, she also is open to the idea of people moving into the elite and people having access to wealth and privilege by developing these manners. Whereas in later books, there's really no consideration of class, which also means there's no consideration of class mobility. Now, one of the more interesting aspects of this from the research standpoint is you're using a technique called computational sociology. What is this approach and how does it work so that you can answer the questions that you're trying to answer? Computational sociology uses data scientific techniques to analyze the text in a different way than I would analyze it as a reader. What we have done is we've digitized these texts, and each book then is a data set. With the computer, what we do is we analyze the words in their relationship to each other, and there are lots of different ways to do that. I'm just going to give you a couple examples. One example is what we call sentiment analysis, and what we do is we have a prepared lexicon that has been created by other researchers who look at the emotional content of words over lots of sources of text and then attaches different emotional valences, disgust, happiness, sadness, anger to particular words and configurations of words. And so what we can do is use that to analyze emotion in the text in a new way than I perhaps would see emotion as a reader. So to give an example, we have done some preliminary work on smoking, looking at the emotion around smoking over the almost 100 years of the book. What we find when you take smoking words, words related to smoking, and you take a window of words around them and you analyze the emotion in that uh, window of 10 or 20 words, what you found is that there's increasing disgust associated with smoking, kind of increases between the early editions until the 1970s, and then drops, and then increases again until the 1990s, and then drops. And for us, that was really interesting because we had this view of disgust associated with smoking just emerging from this analysis with the computer. But then when we looked at the dates of the editions and these changes, they have a pretty nice relationship to the rise of smoking being seen as a problem and then the implementation of a ban on smoking ads in some forms of media in the 70s. And then the second rise in disgust kind of falls off after the big tobacco settlement in the 90s. That's one interesting thing that computational sociology can give us that I wouldn't have gotten to on my own. Is there anything at this point that you've seen that you didn't expect to see? 
I think the thing that's been one of the biggest surprises is, I guess, what I would call the geography of inequality. That so much of what's talked about in these books about social norms is the really grounded specificness of here's how you act here in this context right now. In another context, there may be a completely different set of behavioral expectations, perhaps even in conflict with your the way you behave in one setting. The social skills required to know how to be- behave in a particular time and place. F. Scott Fitzgerald famously, according to some of the background research I've done on Emily Post, was a fan of the early editions of Emily Post. And he suggested that it would, he would like to write a play. And in that play, he his goal was to have people just following Emily Post by the book. And then all the scrapes that you get into as a result of the ambiguity in, of rules of etiquette and the differences in context, etc. And so he had the idea that this would be great fodder for a comedic play of people just um, struggling to carry out uh, their behavior successfully. It sounds like he was really thinking about the Marx Brothers. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Professor Voyer says that using computational sociology as a method was not something she could do when she was training as a scholar. So she's gone to seminars to learn as much as she can and is hopefully uh, going to extend that information to her graduate students who are going to be helping her with this project and learn about it themselves using a National Science Foundation grant. Uh, She expects some papers and a book to come out of her research on Emily Post. Awesome. Very nice. Actually, it's great that uh, your stories are about health and manners because that dovetails neatly with this week's Tom's History Corner. What is it, Tom? Very excited. It touches on health and manners Mm -hmm. in the form of the Spanish flu. Oh, boy. (laughs) Now we're expected you to go. Do we know what the Spanish flu was? Not really. So after World War I, there was a massive – actually, at the end of World War I, World War I was still raging when this uh, outbreak of influenza spread around the world. Killing millions of people Mm -hmm. was the worst flu outbreak in history. For some reason, I was interested in what happened here at UConn during the Spanish flu outbreak. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) These are the kind of thoughts I have. First, let's talk about the Spanish flu in Connecticut. Okay. First arrived here in September 1918 in New London. There were about 700 cases of flu by the third week of September. Wow. Half of them were among military personnel who were stationed in the city. So there was actually a ban on military personnel leaving New London without a special permit because they hoped it would stop the spread of the disease. Guess what? didn't. It did not stop the spread of the disease. By the end of September, cities around the state, including Willimantic, had closed all their schools to try to stop the spread. Starting in October, the state averaged more than 1,000 deaths per week. Wow. With the peak coming the week of October 19th, when more than 1,700 people died of the flu. Waterbury was the worst death toll of any city, with 654 people dying in October, including 33 in a single day. That's frightening. Entire families were wiped out. Town governments ordered churches and schools to be closed, banned public gatherings, including funerals. And since medicine didn't seem to be effective at all, people started using these really weird, like old superstitions, like they'd wear bags of camphor around their necks to hope. I like, don't even know what that is. It's like a, an herb. Okay. Vampires. Yeah, vamp- they're afraid of vampires. Warding off vampires. Why not? Why not? <laughs> you use garlic for that. I know. 
So the number of flu cases started to drop in November and December, and uh, there was a sense of security around the state that the, the worst had passed. Now, interestingly, the flu had not really affected stores at all hmm. until January of 1919 mm. when uh, three people died, all members of the same family, a mother, a daughter, and a niece who lived in the house. And this sparked a panic at Yukon. So what the school did – here's where the manners come in. The school required every student – to report to Holly Armory every morning and have their noses and throats inspected by the <laughs> college nurse who is given as uh, – her name is given as Miss Nicholson. What was the first sign of this flu? Like was that an effective way to make sure no one had it? Anyone with a suspicious nose or throat was sent <laughs> to a doctor and possibly quarantined. The university established isolation quarters mm. for anyone who had the flu. The Connecticut campus uh, newspaper at the time wrote, while it savors somewhat of military discipline to line the student body along the walls of the gymnasium and subject each student to a careful inspection, there is no grumbling against the order. The students are anxious to take every precaution possible to prevent an outbreak of the disease. They were terrified. They were. terrified. But you're bringing them all together to the same place? I guess if they're going to go to class anyway. Whatever it did, it seemed to work because subsequent issues of the paper don't mention any further cases at well, UConn. good. But there was a whole list of rules that were posted everywhere telling people what they could and couldn't do. So like don't spit, don't leave food unattended, all these like things because no one really knew. Exa- I mean they had an idea. Right. But there are all the these. Most advanced time. It wasn't the most advanced time medically. So all kinds of things that you couldn't do like you weren't supposed to leave your windows open that kind of thing. In case the flu germ <laughs> flew in. in. You see like a, an old movie where it like floats around <laughs> yeah, campus right. like a leaf. Yeah. But they had these rules posted all over campus and you had to observe those as well as showing up every day to have the nurse look at your nose and throat. So weird. My brain's just going to such dark places right now. Yeah. Speaking of a dark place, uh, t- Tom is using a new device in the studio today, which uh, from my perspective, looking straight on, it seems to be a Darth Vader-like mm. look. It's called a pop filter, ladies and gentlemen, because I, can't I see Tom's face. My speaking voice is very plosive. No, it's not. And the pop filter helps with that. You're very self-critical. We're going to get a lot of comments online with people saying, "Wow, the podcast is so much better now that Mr. <laughs> plosive has been moderated a little <laughs> That's bit." That's the word they're definitely going to use. That is what they're going to say. Lot. It's what the kids are saying. I just wish I could write like they used to write in the Daily Campus. Oh yeah. Oh, so much fun. Yeah. Well. <laughs> So we learned a lot today. We did learn a lot today. If you want to learn even more, you can follow us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. We're not very um, – We're not as prolific as we used to be. Yeah, we don't keep up with that very well. We just post our new yeah. podcast, which you should get anyway because you should subscribe. Yeah, you anyway. should subscribe. You should um, rate and review it. Julie, you're also on Twitter. <laughs> I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Ken, you're not on Twitter. No, I'm not on Twitter, but at least for another week. I'm on WHUS 91.7 UConn Sound Alternative. Friday mornings from 8.30 to 10.30, and then the new schedule will come in after the semester begins. Great game, everyone. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can I say AF on our podcast? Sure, why not? Why not? WTF, FML, let's get them all out. (laughs)